0: 59 million Americans identify as nonverts. Of course, they wouldn't use the term nonverts, but that doesn't mean that they don't identify as nonverts. Well, what's a nonvert? Well, it's sort of the opposite of a a convert. It is somebody who at one point in their life followed a faith or religious tradition that they no longer identify with. So at one point, they considered themselves Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Christian. But now, if you were to ask them what their religious belief system is, they would say none. None. That's why they're a nonvert. 59 million Americans. Now, it was trending this way for quite some time, but uh, that, that particular slice of the religious pie that makes up the nonverts accelerated a lot during COVID. And I know this from personal experience because I've talked with many people who used to attend Riverview, but now they go nowhere. Some of these people still say that they identify as Christians, and so they're not technically nonverts, but others have gotten to a point where they just no longer believe that they are a part of any organized or even personal belief system, which is ironic because that is a personal belief system, but we'll hit that some other day. What I found in my conversation with my friends that have gone through this is they've just simply come to the realization that their faith was not really a faith, but it was more a duty that they were performing. It was a habit that they were going through. They were just kind of going through the motions rather than really believing what it is that they thought that they believed. And, and, and this this, this nonvert thing is affecting us even if we haven't left the faith. I I suspect that some of you... Maybe even some of you really old school Christians who are still around often feel some of the same ways that these nonverts feel, that you are just going through the motions, that that your faith is duty, that it is just some sort of habit that you have formed that you haven't been able to shake. And so here's the deal. What no one probably ever told you when you became a Christian is that the Christian faith is a lot like a roller coaster. (laughs) There are high moments and there are low moments there's there's mountains there's valleys and then there's a lot of just just riding along on the train. And, and often when we're at one of those low points, we feel like this disconnect between the faith as we know it should be believed and how things are actually working out in our lives. And then sometimes when we're in, we're in that blah middle just kind of riding along in those moments, it can be very difficult to be excited about our faith. But I really believe that the key is finding joy despite where we are on the ride, whether it be the high or the low or the middle. Today we're in the second week of a new series where we're slow walking our way through the book of Colossians. And what we're going to see today is a continuation of what the Apostle Paul was telling his readers last week uh, when he told them that he was praying for them. And the content of the Apostle Paul's prayer today that we're going to see shows us what it's like and where to find joy when things in our life feel sort of blah. So let's take a minute and just pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I just know that here today there are people who are just in one of those high points, like maybe the faith is new to them or something in their life has revitalized this excitement, and they're just, they're they're living the dream in their faith. And some of us, we're at the lowest point, We're not sure whether this thing that we believe is just a habit, if it's just a duty, if we've just been going through the motions or if it's really real. And some of us, we're just kind of clocking along in the middle. And so today we just pray that through your word, you would show us in the Apostle Paul's prayer how joy itself can be a piece of that puzzle of, of helping us through our journey in these moments. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you may remember from last week that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this washed up city, kind of this has-been city of Colossae. And he told them that he was really thankful for them and that he was praying for them. You may remember why. Do you remember why? Yeah, because of their reputation, right? He had heard of their reputation in faith, their reputation in hope, their reputation in love. He had seen that their fruit was bearing, or that their faith was bearing fruit in their city, just like it was all around the world. And then the next thing he writes in Colossians 1 verse 9 is, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So the Apostle Paul, he and Timothy, they're like, we just can't stop praying for you guys. You may remember last week he says, we, we pray for you all the time. Now he's like, we just can't stop praying for you guys. And then he stops and he tells us some stuff that he prayed for for them. Now, sometimes, if you know me, and you've probably heard me say this before you've been around here, when I'm studying, a lot of times I like to work my way backward through a text instead of forward through a text, and I learn a lot more that way, and I understand it that way, and this is one of those such passages. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at the content of Paul's prayer backward by jumping down to verse 12, which is like in the middle of a sentence. So we're going to start in the middle of a sentence of verse 12, where he says, giving thanks... To the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul does here is in like a sentence and a half, he gives us five massive theological, biblical truths that are true of every single one of us if we are followers of Jesus. And if you are one of Jesus' followers, if you've placed your faith in him, if last, like last week Paul said, you are a saint, right? Then all five of these things are true about you. Look at this. He says, you have been rescued you have been transferred, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, and all this has happened because God enabled it to happen. So let's just take a couple minutes and consider those five things. Paul says, if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and turned toward him, you have been rescued. Now, rescue is a core tenet of the Christian faith, but it's one that's kind of at odds with our culture. Our culture, you know, is always telling us you can do it, right? You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make it happen. You don't need anyone but you. But what Scripture teaches us is the exact opposite. In fact, it says in Ephesians that we are by our very nature—wait for it—deserving of wrath. Isn't the Bible encouraging? And what it's saying is it's not just your actions that cause you to be deserving of wrath. It's not just the stuff you've done. It's your very nature. The core of your being deserves wrath. And why is that? Because you're trapped. You are enslaved. You are chained. In the next chapter of Colossians, he says you were dead in your sin. You may remember he alluded to that last week. And I know what you're probably thinking, at least subconsciously. You're probably thinking, I know some people who are deserving of wrath. (laughs) I see them all the time in traffic. But it ain't me. I might be sitting next to one, (laughs) right? But it ain't me. And now the reason you think that, it says in Ephesians, is because you are, wait, darkened in your understanding, You are separated from God. You are ignorant and hard-hearted, and I know that that all sounds so offensive, but if the Bible is to be believed, if that is true, then you're trapped. You're chained. You are in need of rescue, and you need to be rescued by one who is not trapped, who is not chained, one who is true, one who is not darkened in his understanding, one who is not ignorant or separated from God. And, and, and just let me tell you a little story that has anything that make sense. So I was doing my taxes, like at the last minute, which I shouldn't have been last week, and I hit a little snafu in my taxes. And I couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't figure out a way out of it. And I had a plan, but it wasn't really a good plan, but I couldn't figure out what to do with my taxes. And, and at that time, uh, my daughter and my son-in-law just popped into our house to hang out. And my son-in-law made a little suggestion. It was a simple little suggestion about my taxes, but it was something I had never considered before. And what it did is it kind of like, turned on a little light. And so I started to research what he said to make sure that he was right. I actually reached out to my accountant to talk to through them and with the tax service I'm working with. And they completely made everything clear to me. My son-in-law was right. It was just, I had been darkened in my understanding. I had no idea. I had no way of fathoming what I had to do. And his simple suggestion changed everything. And that's how we are in a spiritual sense. We're in the dark. We don't know what we don't know. And until someone kind of turns a light on for us and leads us to, to see what we're looking for, we just can't see uh, what we're looking for. And the person that turns that light on for us is Jesus. And he's also the one that shines the light. He stepped into his creation. He lived a sinless life that we couldn't live. He showed us a way of living that just we could never even comprehend. And then he became our sin on the cross. And and Jesus was not darkened in his understanding. He knew exactly what he was doing. This was all according to plan. He was not separated with God until that moment when he died on the cross for your sins and the father turned his face away. And in that moment, Jesus became your sin. He became the sacrifice for the sin so that you wouldn't have to die, but he had to die so that you wouldn't die. But then he was buried. He rose again. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. He ascended to the right hand of, God the Father, and he became the rescuer that you didn't even know you needed. And that is why scripture says, you have been rescued, and when you are rescued, you are also transferred. Your trajectory in your life, whether you realize it or not, was from darkness to darkness. So many people are like, why would a loving God Send anyone to hell, and the truth is your trajectory, your position was in darkness, toward darkness, and you needed to be rescued from that journey to hell. And that's what Jesus did. He rescued you from being deserving of wrath. You were still deserving of wrath, but he rescued you from that wrath. And when Jesus stepped in and intervened, he reached in, he grabbed you, he rescued you. He not only did that, he transferred you over. He moved you from one kingdom to another kingdom. Uh, He put you into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. You now have a new king in Jesus. You have a new passport. You are a new citizen. And Paul says that means you are redeemed. The word redeemed comes from the word ransom. There was a price hanging over your head and Jesus paid that price fully for you. With his blood, he forgave you of all your sins. And this is true if you are in Christ. Not only that, but think about it. How much of that did you do? Absolutely none of it. None. That's why Paul says at the beginning, he says, God the Father enabled you to do this, to share in the saints' inheritance. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a saint, that means you, have been, you are now a holy one, who has been set apart for a purpose. And and, and part of that purpose is to gain this inheritance, a portion of Jesus's inheritance, his inheritance he gives to you. So not only did Jesus take your sins onto the cross, he's giving you a share of his inheritance and you've done none of it. There isn't a a, a modicum, there isn't a hint, there isn't a tiny smell of conditionality in any of this. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to keep yourself saved. There's nothing you can do to maintain your salvation. Jesus does all the work. And what we're gonna see is that this is the key to enduring joy when things are blah. When you're in one of those trough seasons, you could take a look at Paul's prayer to the Colossians. So now let's jump back up to verse nine. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking, this is Paul and Timothy's prayer for the Colossians and, and my prayer for you, and, and I think through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his prayer for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all wisdom. And spiritual understanding. This is the content of Paul's prayer. He's saying to these Colossian Christians, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Now, think about that for a second. That word filled doesn't just mean like a little bit in your cup or, like, right? or that your cup is like half full. It doesn't mean it, that, 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 that just you might have a tiny bit of slosh around at the bottom, right? Um, it doesn't mean that they put, you put ice in all the way like they do at the restaurant so that they could just give you a, a, a little squirt of pop in there, right? He means, I want you to be filled all the all the way to the brim with the knowledge of his will. So track with this. Paul is saying, because I am so thankful for all that God has already done in your life, your faith, your hope, your love that we saw last week, because I've seen that your faith is growing to fruitfulness just like it is around the world. The same thing he said last week, right? In your little city, God's doing an amazing thing that syncs up with what he's doing around the world because of all of that. My prayer for you now is that you would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. One of the most common questions I get, and it comes in a bunch of different forms, from followers of Jesus is simply this. What is God's will for my life? And by the way, that's an excellent question. It's the right question. As followers of Jesus, we should be asking this question. What does God want from me? And Paul says, listen, what I want is for you, the cup of your life to be filled with the knowledge of what God's will is for your life. I don't want you to have any doubt. I don't want there to be any bit that's left over, any air in this cup, so to speak, right? I don't want you to wonder at all. I want you to be filled with this. And so you should be filled with the knowledge of what God wants you to do and what God wants you not to do. And the problem is the way we tend to think about the will of God is like a dartboard. So imagine we've got a dartboard like, okay, way back there, right right up there, right there. I'm looking at the dartboard right there. Now imagine that right in the middle of that dartboard, you've got that little bullseye, right? The tiny little red bit right in the middle that has a harder cork than the rest of it. So when you throw it, it bounces off and then you get all mad. You say, I got a bullseye. And everyone says, no, you didn't because it bounced off that that thing, the bullseye right there, right? Well, we tend to think of God's will is that God's will is this bullseye. Have you ever heard anybody use the phrase, I want to be in the center of God's will? That's this idea. There's a whole bunch of bad theology that circles around that statement, I want to be in the center of God's will. Because the idea, center of God's will, usually for most people means that there's a bullseye and I got a dart and I got one shot to hit the bullseye in God's will. And and once I throw this dart, there's nothing I can do about it. And if I don't hit that bullseye, I am failing as a Christian. I am outside of God's will. So I'm gonna just be presumptuous for a second and I'm gonna tell tell you exactly what God's will is for your life. You might want to get a pen out. You might want to get out the notes app on your phone cuz this is important stuff. I'm going to tell you God's will for your life, it's baked into this passage. What does Paul say? He says, "I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God." And so he's presuming that it's possible to know the will of God, and that's what I want for you as well. Where does that thing come from? It's in the next bit. Look at it. From all knowledge and a spiritual understanding. All, or sorry, all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's that little bit right at the bottom there. Now, wisdom is broad. The Bible has a book of Proverbs, right? That's like all wisdom literature, right? All kinds of wise statements. There's a lot of wisdom in this world. There's general wisdom in this world. There, and, and spiritual understanding, which is a little bit more narrow than wisdom. Spiritual understanding is understanding what God would have us do. What is morally right and wrong. That's spiritual understanding. So there's the broad wisdom, just something that is generally wise or scripturally wise, and then there's what is moral, which is spiritual understanding. What is moral or immoral to do? So you have these two kind of categories here, and and, and so let's boil it all down. The simple way to make a decision in your life is this. You just ask yourself two questions. Is it wise, and is it Moral. And I usually like to ask the question the other way around. Start with moral, move to wise. There's a reason for that. Go from spiritual understanding, moral, to wise. And then just any issue. So just think about something you're facing right now. I'll let you think of it. Some decision you're having to make. Maybe it's a decision about who you're going to marry, or where you're going to go to school, or how you're going to lead your business, or or anything like that. So you, you, got it, you got it in your head, kind of whatever decision is you have to make right now, all you need to do is to find the will of God for your life that is filled to the brim is ask those two questions. Is it moral? Is it wise? And once you've asked those two questions, you know God's will for your life. And by the way, the re, where we get our definition of moral, spiritual understanding is from this book and the broader definition of what is wise it comes from this book and just other just wisdom in this world and so if the answer to both of these questions is it moral and is it wise is yes then wait for it you can do whatever you want to do <laughs> pick it so like if you have two options in front of you and one is moral and wise and the other is moral and wise, the question is no longer which one of these does God want me to do, it's which one do I want to do because they're both moral and wise. And if they're both wise and they both have spiritual understanding, you get to choose. But a lot of times we have a choice and the choice is between something that is immoral and perhaps unwise and moral and wise. And what we want to do is this is the one we really want to do. So we ask everybody's opinion, should I do this? Let me give you an example. For instance, should I move in with my significant other before we get married? Let's process that for a second. Is it moral? Well, Scripture would tell us that sexuality is reserved uh, uh, for the context of marriage. And so someone would say, okay, um, well, I can move in with her, but I'm not going to sleep with her. Which, by the way, I've had people say that to me. That's a lie, right? So you're you're lying to your pastor because obviously you're going to sleep with that person if you move in together. But let's just say you have just absolutely extraordinary self-control and you're able to move in with them and not, not sleep with them. Is it wise? Well, we know that it isn't wise. We know that when when people cohabitate before marriage, that they have a higher percentage of divorce than people who don't. The world will tell you that. That's not in the Bible. That's, That's just what the world tells you. We also know that temptation would be stronger. So it seems unwise. That's a pretty easy decision. But then we're like, what does God want me to do? Well, I feel like I want to do this. That's not how you determine God's will. You determine God's will on base, whether it's moral or it's wise. Now, what does this have to do with Colossians? Well, think about this. If you have been rescued, if you have been transferred into a new kingdom, if you have been redeemed, if you have been forgiven, if none of that has anything to do with what you've done, what happens is the weight of all of that, when it falls on you, when you see how loved you are by God, That you were worthy of wrath, deserving of wrath, and yet he saved you, he rescued you, he forgave you, he redeemed you, he transferred you into his kingdom, and that one day you're gonna get a portion of Jesus' inheritance. When you begin to get that, it changes everything. You begin to want to, verse 10, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. And I realize I never gave them that slide, so you just have to live with that. Now, notice this. This is really interesting. This is all like a big circle. Think about it this way. As you grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding through this word, through getting to know this word, you begin to grasp God's will for your life. And as you begin to walk... Um, worthy of that. You start walking worthy of the Lord. You start walking in that wisdom and morality because that's your natural response to the word of God, right? And the more you do that, the more you are fully pleasing to Jesus in the way that you are living. And as you do that, you bear more fruit in your life and God begins to work in your life and you begin to know God better and better, which leads to what? More spiritual maturity, more wisdom, and then the thing just kind of keeps spinning. If you know what a fly, Do you know what a flywheel is? Like a flywheel—it's like kind of—it's sort of like a, a ginormous, really heavy version of that top that you would spin as a kid on the table. You know the, the, what those things are? Those little tops. And so, basically, a flywheel—you have a bunch of them in your car. They're in all engines. Uh, basically, a flywheel is something really heavy that you have to take a lot of oomph to get the thing going. Right? You have to really push it hard to get the thing moving. But once it gets moving, you just kind of start going like this to it. Shoop. Shoop, shoop, and the thing just keeps spinning and keeps spinning. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He said, what I'm praying for you guys is that you will grow in, in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. And what's gonna end up happening from this is this is gonna cause you to continue to walk worthy of the Lord. And so that that flywheel starts spinning in your life and, and, and it just, just keeps flying. Now that heavy object is your spiritual maturity. It's your spiritual growth. And it's the thing that carries you when you're in those seasons where you're all the way down at the bottom, where you're coasting in the middle. In my personal experience, in the people that I've talked to who have slid into being a nonvert, the very first thing that went is they stopped caring about what God had to think about things. They didn't care what wisdom was or what uh, morality was from scripture. They just didn't care anymore. And, and it wasn't even just that they were being belligerent. It's just like, it just became a low priority. And so then that flywheel just began to slow down and slow down and slow down. Hold on to that for a second as I read this next verse because this is what Paul says next, verse 11. He says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully. I'm going to just stop right there. (laughs) He says, being strengthened with all power. That's that oomph that gets the flywheel spinning. Strengthened with power, according to what? According to all of your effort? No, according to his, that's Jesus's glorious might. Who provides the oomph to get that flywheel spinning in your life? Jesus does. It's not your power. It's the power of God Almighty. It's the power of Jesus, his all-powerful son. This is what gets everything moving in your life. It's all about him. It's his glorious might. And so when you have endurance and patience, he says, this endurance and patience and joy flows out of the mighty work of God, not your own work. So this is what I would say. When you're feeling kind of blah in your spiritual walk, you don't need to do more or try harder. Let me say that again. When you are feeling blah in your spiritual work, you don't need to do more or try harder. It's about Jesus and his strength. So often when our lives feel out of sync with our, our faith feels kind of out of sync with our life, we try to rely on ourselves more. We try to gut it out more on our own. But it's all about Jesus. Jesus, who has great patience toward us, can give us great patience and understanding when we just realize Jesus has got this. And so what we just do is we lean in to just knowing him more, growing in our wisdom and understanding so that he'll give us the patience and endurance to make it through all this. Look at this, being strengthened, with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. The joy that you have comes through Jesus. The more you trust in Jesus, the more joy you have. And that doesn't mean it's easy. You can have joy in the midst of pain. You can have joy when trying to make tough decisions. You can have joy when dealing with the consequences of a bad decision that you've made that's now threatening to rip you out of the hands of Jesus. And no matter what you're facing today, if you are in Christ, your faith is secure in him. This is true about you. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his glorious light. In Jesus, you have redemption. You have forgiveness of sin. And because of that, you can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so what that means is you can grow in wisdom. You can grow in understanding. You don't have to freak out every time you miss the dart or you find yourself in the low point of that roller coaster because you are secure in him. He is moving. So just lean into what he's doing. Take joy in Jesus. Get to know him better. And then make decisions the best that you can with wisdom and spiritual understanding and leave the results to him. I want to read the last verse or a couple verses, which I'm not even sure if I had on the screen, but it says, He, that's Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has already done all the work. And it just seems like every time I get into a season where I'm feeling blah, or I'm at the bottom trough of the valley, I just feel like I've got to do more. I've got to gut it out. I've got to make myself feel better. I've got to make myself feel joyful. And I suspect I'm not the only one here who feels that way. We thank you that we've been rescued. We've been transferred. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. And we didn't do any of that. It was all God the Father working through his son Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so in these seasons where things feel rough, help us just to lean into Jesus' strength, to trust him, to grow in our knowledge of spiritual understanding and wisdom and to trust that Jesus has got us until the very end. We just pray that that joy would transform everything inside of us. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and saving name. Amen.